Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's main episode, and also welcome to Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. You're thinking, wow, what an ad read to start with. No, this is not a spawned. If you are looking for an odd collectible from around the world, you came to the right place. May I interest you in some human skulls? Maybe you're looking for some shrunken heads inside of jars. Listen, I'm not judging your home decor, your interior design skills. Maybe you're looking for some cult items, some artifacts, whatever it is, the eccentric bearded owner, Bob, is going to help you find it. On his front display shelf, as you walk in, he's got this note written the final four with four human skulls right behind it. You're like, what? That's a little weird. A lot of collectors love Bob's Bizarre Bazaar. I mean, they think it's the best. Bob has the knowledge. He's got the special talent. If you're looking for something so specific, Bob's going to go out there and search the little hidden corners of the world and present it to you. He's going to find it for you. He's detailed. He's smart. He knows his stuff about weird collectibles. Now, if you were a woman coming into the shop, maybe you wouldn't necessarily love it as much, okay? Because Bob has this thing. Let's say you walk in with your brother, your husband, your dad, or just another male, just a friend. He doesn't like talking to women. Bob, that is. So if you say, uh, hey, Bob, how old is that human skull? It's real, right? He wouldn't even look at you. He won't even make eye contact with you. Instead, he will look at your male partner and say, oh, yeah, it's about uh, 100 years old. As if the man asked the question, he will not acknowledge your presence. But regardless of your experience, here's one thing that I think you might be feeling after you leave his shop is this guy's weird. This guy's eccentric. He's strange. I mean, I wonder what he's like outside of the shop. It's it's very similar to that of teachers. You're thinking, what do they what do they wear outside of school? What do they buy? What do they do in their free time? Do they go bowling? Do they party? Do they go drinking? What do teachers do? You probably think the same thing about Bob. I can't imagine running into Bob Bardella of Bob's Bizarre Bazaar at a Trader Joe's. (laughs) What does he even buy? I can't imagine him buying some hummus and putting it into his cart. That's weird. And what else do you think Bob collects? Do you think that he collects humans too? Because he collects human skulls. Quite possibly, maybe. Do you think that he collects human toys in his house and tries to turn them into live playthings? What's human toys? Humans, but make them collectible. Oh, okay. Maybe Bob injects Drano into their necks to try to destroy their voice boxes so that they can't scream. Maybe he gets one of those caulking pipes, you know, those caulking guns that you can get at Home Depot. If you don't know what caulk is, it's like the grout between your tiles. Yeah, we just use that to um, for our sewer to make sure nothing climbs through it. Well, what if Bob stuffs that into people's ears? So that it makes it harder for them to hear. If they can't hear, maybe they don't know where Bob is in the house. Maybe that makes it harder for them to escape. What if Bob injects bleach into people's eyeballs? So that they can be hard of seeing. If they're hard of seeing, maybe they'll have a hard time escaping. What if this is what Bob Bardella does in his free time when he's not running his little store called Bob's Bazaar Bazaar? 
full source notes are always available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. But yes, you guessed it. There is a really good deep dive book on this case. It's called Rights of Burial, written by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Tom Jackman. So there's even a documentary that's based off of this book, too, called Bizarre Bizarre. And they interview a ton of the key players. Let me tell you, that documentary is good. The music choice in that documentary, however, is odd at best. Like, it's it's just bizarre. I mean, I guess it fits the theme. It fits the title. It fits the whole subject. But I mean, their music choice. I want to talk to someone about it. So if the documentary is good, the book is even better. So Tom Jackman, he interviewed the Kansas City Police Department. The prosecutors that worked on this case did so many interviews. I mean, you have to read this book. I searched high and low for a deep dive on this case, which is bizarre that there isn't a lot. Even in this book and throughout like all, I think I went through like 10 freaking Google search pages. It is hard to find information about the victims. Really, really hard. And we'll get into why. Now, obviously, we won't get as deep as the book. So go pick yourself up a copy and let's get into the case. But quick disclaimer, I'm kind of losing my voice, which like I'm thinking maybe it's like kind of a sexy vibe, like the raspiness, you know? (laughs) Kind of. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, suddenly I'm a real podcaster. Welcome to Rotten Mango. Oh, that's good. Thank you. So who is Bob Berdala, a serial killer? I mean, this is a serial killer name that we don't really frequently hear about. Why is he not as talked about as Ted Bundy? And I'm not saying that he should be an infamy. He should be popular. But I'm saying, is it because his victims were sex workers primarily? They were victims who were struggling economically, financially, and just kind of like the forgotten population of the world. So let's get into it. Bob Berdala was born in Ohio. He was the first of two sons. He had a younger brother by the name of Danny. And his dad was Robert Berdala Sr. Okay, so they've got the same name, Bob Sr., Bob Jr. And his mom's name was Mary. She was a stay-at-home mom. Now, Bob's childhood from the outside, you're looking in, you're like, wow, that doesn't give me serial killer vibes. Completely normal, this whole family. He grew up super religious. So Bob's dad, uh, he was of Italian descent, insanely Catholic. The whole family constantly at church constantly just focused on religion and bob was just confused i don't get it dad i don't know it's just it doesn't make sense to me like why do i have to confess to this person why can't i just confess to god like this person this priest is telling me that god forgives me but why can't i just talk to god and be like hey do you forgive me why do i have to go through this person i just don't understand I mean, do these priests actually talk to God, you think? And the dad would just be like, don't even talk about this nonsense. You are a disgrace to the family that you have some critical thinking skills like get out of here. You just follow authority blindly. What kind of boy have I raised? Like he was pissed. okay? so when Bob turns five, he's already getting bullied. And this just makes his whole religious thing even harder and just crazier because he's like, I don't get it. But, you know, God says he loves everyone. But these kids are constantly bullying me because I'm nearsighted and I wear these thick glasses. And it's like, that's not even my fault. I have a slight lisp. I have a speech impediment. People are bullying me for it. Why is God okay with it? You know, for five-year-olds, these are some pressing questions. He was also diagnosed with high blood pressure, and he had to take these heavy medications, which made him super unathletic, right? Now, his dad was like a, one of those dudes. That was like, you're not a dude if you don't love football. 
If you don't love other men playing with balls, you're not a dude. Like, that's it. Point blank. He would always compare Bob to his younger brother, Danny. Why can't you do what Danny does? Why can't you throw a ball like Danny? Why can't you, you know, why can't we play tennis together? And naturally, because Bob Sr. and the little brother were into sports and Bob wasn't, it just, they became like their own little thing. Mm. Always leaving Bob out. Oh, we're going to go play golf. But Bob, you shouldn't come because you don't even know how to, you don't even know how to play with balls play with balls right which is ironic because um bob is gay so Mm. (laughs) you know i mean i don't know it's very very strange a lot of people actually compare his childhood to that of john wayne gacy's Mm -hmm. because bob's dad called him a s-i-s-s-y which i just recently learned is a slur okay so um yeah he would say things like that in a really derogatory way and just pushed bob to his mom They were constantly together. And Bob Sr. was also abusive. He would beat them with leather straps. Anything that they did wrong, he'd be like, you come here. And he would just smack them around. Some of the students that Bob went to school with, they would recognize this. Mm -hmm. They'd say he's always coming into class with bruises. And they said, and I quote, I felt sorry for the guy, but not sorry enough to hang out with him. So he doesn't have much confidence growing up. But in high school, suddenly... He gets hit with some intellectual praise, okay? Bob was one of three students that were placed into an independent study program reserved for some of the best art students in the curriculum. There's not even like a set number per year. It's not like, oh, we have to fill three spots every single year. He ranked top of the class. I mean, he was doing really, really well in school academically. So suddenly his confidence is just getting more and more and more until he starts getting cocky. He starts developing this condescending tone like I'm better than you. A super condescending tone, especially towards women. And he was obsessed with this film called The Collector, like Leonard, like the other serial killer. This movie needs to be on some sort of list okay like if you ever ask someone what their favorite movie is and they say the collector you better run because they're going to kidnap people what's the movie one more time so it's about a man who kidnaps a woman because he thinks that she's pretty and he's convinced that this is for love she's going to fall in love with him she comes into the basement he's like got this whole bunker set up but she ends up dying and he just looks at her as if she's, you know, a collectible, not a human, but just something to be collected. And he almost feels like, well, that's her fault for dying. That's not my fault. That's insane. And the movie ends with him preparing for the next kidnapping. And there are two serial killers that love this book. Freaking love this book. OK, so movie or book. I mean, movie. Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Love this movie. I think it's based off of a good book. OK. Now, Christmas Day, Bob's a teenager. They decide, the whole family decides that they're going to spend time with some relatives. After they have this amazing little party, they come home and Bob Sr. has a heart attack and dies. He's only 39 years old. Whoa. So Bob's confused and he starts going to church and he keeps asking these questions. He's only 39. Why did my dad die? Mm -hmm. Why, Why wouldn't God save my dad if my dad is just the most religious, perfect, not sinful man in the world? Why? Why would God want me to be dadless? I don't understand. So he started hating organized religion, but he was also fascinated by it. So he stops going to church. He starts, he stops participating, but he loves reading about it. So he'd collect these books and he would just read about all of these different religions, Buddhisms, you know, Christianity, Catholicism, even Satanism. He started just getting really into it. Everyone described him as being really intelligent, but quiet, like a loner. Never really had friends, you know, never played outside, only read. As a young kid, he was so proud of his stamp collection, his coin collection. That was his favorite thing. 
and he would actually start selling them later in college, right? Now, up until this point, he was really close with his mom. But after Bob Sr. died, she remarried. Mm. And he would just tell her, I just don't understand. How can you betray dad like that? How can you just forget about him and get married again? What about, what about all the memories that we had? Was he nothing to you? You just move on with this other man that like you want me to be nice to now? I just don't get it. He had so much resentment for his mom. Eventually, they would get closer as time passed, but it was really, really bad. So after high school, he gets into the Kansas City Art Institute. This guy was stoked. Bob is like, this is my time to shine. I'm so good at art. I'm so good at like, you know, seeing the potential in different pieces and creating performance art. And he starts really, you know, letting his personality come through, which people were alarmed by. So, for example, there was a performance art piece and he created this massive maze inside of a room. Mm -hmm. And uh, anytime a student would come in, You'd give them a chicken, a tiny little one, a cute one. Like think of a little baby chick, right? Mm -hmm. So he says, you have to go through the maze, but you have to be holding this tiny little chicken in your hands. Mm -hmm. So they're like, this is so cute. They start going through the maze. The chicken and them are bonding. You know, the whole time they're like, hey, little chicken, should we go right or left? They start forming this cute little relationship. And at the end of it, he sits everyone down. They're still holding their chickens. And on a big, big screen, he starts playing this film. Mm -hmm. These cute little chickens eating some dinner. And then, boom, each one was shot to death in the film. Traumatizing, yes, but the sick part is the audience were still holding their chickens. Uh huh. And because they were so taken aback, because they were so surprised by this, they ended up kind of squeezing, like as a reflex, like they would jump and kind of squeeze the little chickens in their hands. Uh huh. And Bob watched completely satisfied. That's what people reported. That he just looked so content. And he called it performance art. He would go to parties and he would start dancing outlandishly. People said not necessarily well, just strange. He had another performance piece where he would gather all the students and teachers together. Come, 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 sit down, right? He started passing out these paper bags. Now here's what I want you to do. Put it over your head. They would put it over their heads and he would just start screaming. Just start cursing at them. He would call them out one by one, just degrading them. And he called it fart. No, he called it art, okay? I mean, it's crazy. He brought a live duck to class. And in the middle of this, he put it on the table and decapitated it. A live duck. And then danced around it while just like chanting random things. Took it home and cooked dinner with it. And now again, he called it art. I mean, just really bizarre, right? And so what, like, what do people respond to, like? The first two, the teachers were like, wow, look at this interpretation of blah, blah, blah. But the last one of the duck, they were not happy. Administrators were not happy to the point where he actually dropped out. <sighs> he felt like he was going to get expelled. So he was like, you know what? Maybe I should do something else. So he left the Kansas Art Institute. I mean, just absolutely strange. If you were with him one on one, he seemed calm almost. He seemed relaxed, maybe even shy, normal, right? Mm -hmm. But if you were with a huge group setting, he would just say the most obnoxious things to get shock value. Mm -hmm. Then when he came out later, he would actually use this information to shock people. Not the fact that he's gay, because that's not shocking, but just like say really off color things about young underage boys. And everyone stated, you know, it didn't shock us. It was just embarrassing. Like we knew that he was puffing himself up and saying these things to get a reaction. Mm -hmm. And it was just strange. We just stopped inviting him to places. 
And it became even weirder because a lot of people knew that outside of making these jokes, Bob really didn't have much sexual activity till he was way into his 30s. He was actually even uncomfortable around gay people, almost seemed annoyed by gay people. Which, like, side note, I have to do these disclaimers because there's always, like, that one person without any critical thinking skills. Just because a killer is gay doesn't mean gay people are killers. Come on, let's, you know, keep up with the times. Think on your feet, okay? We talk about a lot of straight killers. So now that he's in Kansas City, Missouri, he was arrested multiple times, twice for selling drugs, caught by undercover cops. Like, he straight up tried to sell drugs to these people. He was like, you want to marijuana? It's a cop. He was arrested for possession. He was interviewed multiple times for being connected to missing men in the neighborhood. So allegedly he was killing people already? Yeah. He was the last to see a Jerry Howell, a 19-year-old. He said, no, I dropped him off at the 7-Eleven. Well, what about James Ferris? He was living with you when he vanished. I don't know anything about that. That guy was, you know, working the streets. He's a sex worker. He probably, he probably ran away. I mean, this this guy's suspicious. Bob is suspicious, but the police can't really do anything because even when they asked to search Bob's house, he said, no, I haven't cleaned it yet. What does that mean? But they can't get a search warrant. They didn't have enough officers. They didn't have enough resources. So Bob just kind of moved on with his life. He started, you know, developing a relationship with the community. He wasn't necessarily hated by anyone in the community. One woman said, you know, the thing with Bob is that he was just really mean to women in a gross way. Just would completely ignore your existence. He was really condescending. If you came into a shop interested in buying something, maybe you're like, dude, this design just speaks to me. You know what? I saw on TikTok that this thing is hyped right now. He would be so rude to you because you're not a real collector. You're not someone who really cares about this thing. A human skull? Yeah, (laughs) like he would just completely hate you if you weren't as knowledgeable or devoted as he was. But then he would randomly do nice things. He would drive a bunch of young people to the farmland near Kansas City because, you know, to get them out of the city for once, these were underprivileged kids. One day, Bob tells his friends, I'm going to be a big brother. What do you mean? To troubled runaway teens. I'm going to just let them into my house. He lives in this three story house. I can have them live in the basement, on the third floor. You know, it'll be fine. Wait, but Bob, you don't even like kids. Nah, no, no, no. I'm going to be a big brother. So they would actually talk behind Bob's back and they felt like, I think that this guy's just trying to seduce these young men. I don't think that this guy is trying to help anyone. Mm -hmm. I just don't understand. So it seems like he's kind of nice, but in a suspicious way. And then at the same time, if he had a neighbor that he despised, he would hang these creepy dolls outside his house, looking straight into the neighbor's windows. He was never violent. That's what everyone said. Never a violent person. Not a violent bone in his body, everyone suspected. But he was incredibly petty. Do you know what this move has made me realize? I opened up my box in my bathroom the other day and I'm like, why do I have a full box of acne treatment and skincare products? They're like half used. I don't even remember if half of these worked, if half of them, what do they even do? What do they target? And I find that it's because it's just so freaking hard to navigate skincare products. Everyone has the same marketing. There's so many options. There's so many claims out there and you spend hundreds of dollars on the latest new hyped product and 
you don't even really know what's the ingredient list what what's going on in there and it turns out a lot of skincare products just don't really do much i find that my skin responds best to just simple fewer products that are clinically proven and customized to help my specific skin that's why i'm excited to partner with apostrophe if you guys don't know they are a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to clear acne. I love this oral part because I find that oral medication for me has just had the drastic improvement. Topical helps, but oral medication is really where I've noticed the change. Apostrophe connects you with a board-certified dermatologist who creates a personalized treatment plan that's perfectly tailored for your unique skin. All you have to do is fill out their online quiz about your skin goals, your medical history, then you take a cute little selfie and your dermatologist will create your customized treatment plan. I've used them specifically to treat acne, but they can also help other skincare goals like maybe your redness, maybe wrinkles, even dark spots. Listen, and I know it's kind of embarrassing to say that you have adult acne, but I struggle with it and it just feels really good to know that I'm on the right track. And if you guys are on the same boat as me, I have a special deal for you. Save $15 off your first visit with a board certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash rotten when you use our code rotten. This code is only available to you guys. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com com slash rotten and click begin visit then use our code rotten at sign up and you get $15 off your dermatology visit that's a-p-o-s-t-r-o-p-h-e dot com slash rotten and use that code rotten to get your dermatology visit and save $15 and we thank apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast If he was mad at you, he would not threaten you. He would not punch you. He would not threaten to beat you up. He would drag your butt to small claims court. Like just nonstop. He felt like everyone was out to screw him. Just him against the world. That was his attitude. So then he opens up his shop, Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. Now, at first, it was just like this booth in a flea market. And then eventually it became like a full blown shop. He was making, I believe, around like $3,000 a month. Which is really good, you know. He had his business cards that all said, I rise from death. I kill death. Death kills me. I resuscitate the bodies I've created. And alive in death, I destroy myself. Whoever bites me must first bite himself. Just bizarre. Confusing. Then he called his shop the ethnological curiosities from the world's far corners. What made it even more alarming is that, you know, inside of his house, it was like a back room for his shop. So every single square inch of his house was covered, covered in books, magazines, collectibles, artifacts. He had more human skulls inside of his house. He had bags of bones, bags of teeth. He had sculptures. He had ceramics. He had art hung up all on the walls. This is a police officer's worst nightmare to search as a crime scene because what's an artifact and what's a murder victim? Mm-hmm. And how can you prove how what if he just says, no, 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 I bought that at a shop one day to sell at Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that that's the skull of a missing man. Mm-hmm. How would I? What? I bought this from blah, blah, blah. So let's talk about a man by the name of Christopher Bryson. He was 22 years old. And let me tell you, he had a rough 22 years of life. He was struggling. He never really had the best attention and the best education growing up. So by the time that he's 22, he had dropped out of high school, arrested for burglary, and was doing sex work. Now, he does have a wife and children, and he's trying to like get it by, you know, trying to make money so that he can kind of also feed his addiction, but also feed his family. I mean, this is truly the example of a victim is trying their best in life but the cards were just not dealt in their favor 
So he's working downtown Kansas City. Bob drives by. He had come into the area specifically looking for sex work. Rolls down his window. Hey, uh, how much? They start talking about pricing. And Chris thinks to himself, you know, Bob looks, what, 40 years old. He's got this round face, this cute little mustache. He looks harmless. He looks almost meek. I'm not saying he looks necessarily nice, but he looks like, you know, like kind of one of those married men who's hiding secrets from their wife, just very shy almost, Mm -hmm. not going to be that assertive and dominant. So yeah, why not? Gets into Bob's car and the plan was to go back to Bob's place and have a good time. Bob's talking about, do you do drugs? What kind of downers? I've got some Valium, some really good Valium. Oh yeah, let's do that. So Chris is thinking, maybe this guy doesn't even want sex. Maybe he just wants the company. So they get to Bob's place and Chris is sitting on the couch, just looking at this living room covered in clutter. Like what the fork is going on here? I mean, it's not even, imagine a gallery wall, but a million times messier on every single wall and on every single surface. It was intense. He's got these giant chow chows, you know, those dogs. And they were trained aggressively. They were not trained well to be, you know, the amazing chow chows that can be. But they were just really aggressive. So Chris is sitting there just in his little corner in the little living room couch. Bob's like, you want another beer? Um, yeah, sure. So he starts drinking. Hey, uh, Chris, you want to go upstairs? What? Well, see, I have this chow chow and she just had puppies. So she's feeling really protective. I think she's going to, you know, she's probably not friendly right now. I don't know if you like dogs, but I'm telling you chow chows can be really intense. Why don't we go upstairs? I have a couch. I have a TV up there. It'll be fun. Um, yeah, sure. Let's go. So he grabs his beer and Bob's like, right this way. Chris starts walking up first. Bob's right behind him. The minute that Chris gets to the top landing, Bob pulls out a giant two foot long metal pipe and bonks Chris on the back of the head. I mean, Chris is beyond disoriented. Before he can even try to get up or ask what the fork is going on, Bob sticks a giant needle into the back of Chris's neck and he loses consciousness. The next time Chris wakes up, he realizes that he's been dragged into one of the bedrooms unclothed and Bob is taking pictures of him with a Polaroid camera. So he starts freaking out. He's like, what are you doing? He realizes that he's gagged with a rag. There's a dog collar around his neck and the leash is attached to the bed. Then he slips back into unconsciousness. Now, Bob leaves multiple times throughout this and goes to take a nap. Just like goes, takes a nap, comes back at 530 in the morning and starts scribbling in the corner of a room into a journal. Writing all of the things that he did. Bob takes off all of his clothes, starts dry humping Chris, and then goes back to his little journal and writes down F-R-T-F-U. That's his abbreviation for Friction Front F-U-C-K. Injected another syringe of drugs into Chris's shoulder, really strong animal tranquilizer, puts a pillowcase over Chris's head, and starts writing that in his journal, like a doctor, taking notes, administered, you know, 5cc of this. Now, Bob's silent most of the time, doesn't even talk to Chris. I mean, Chris, anytime that he's conscious, he keeps asking, what are you doing? Please let me go. Why are you doing this? And Bob just silently ignores him, moves over, grabs a couple of Q-tips, soaks them in bleach and Drano, like drain cleaner, jumps on top of Chris, starts holding his eyes down, 
and poking his eyeballs Whoa. with the Q-tips. Oh Chris said it felt like someone was burning his eyes out. So, of course, he starts screaming. Now, Bob doesn't like that because the neighbors might hear. So, he grabs his iron bar and starts beating Chris with it over and over and over again. And Chris is thinking, okay, please be over now, right? But Bob attaches electrical clamps to Chris's genitals and starts electrocuting him. He grabs his Polaroid camera and starts taking pictures of Chris in this unimaginable pain. Just throughout the torture, Bob is taking Polaroid pictures. Okay, so that sounds like this is not his first gig. No. That's insane. So Bob feels like Chris is still too loud. So he grabs his little needles, pumps it with Drano, and shoves it into Chris's neck near his vocal cords so that it would mess with his voice box. Now, Bob would later say that he's not trying to poison anyone. He doesn't want the Drano to enter people's systems because that means his human toy would die. And they're not fun when they're dead. He's not a necrophiliac. So he would just try to ruin the voice box by injecting Drano near it. I mean, it's giving me a lot of Ed Kemper, who tried to, you know, throw his mom's vocal cords down the garbage disposal in the kitchen sink. And he kept telling Chris, if you ever yell again, I will put it straight into your vocal cords and you will never be able to talk anymore. And then he injected Chris with some other drugs and penicillin, which is an antibacterial so that this guy doesn't get an infection. Because at the end of the day, Bob wants a live human captive toy. And then he just waits. Just waits till Chris wakes up again. And then immediately gets into his face and goes off on his speech. You're my sex toy and you will never see the world again. You're stuck here. The only thing that you need to think about is you and me and this house. Don't try to fight me or you'll just get more of what you had earlier. Remember that metal bar? What you got is nothing compared to what you can have. If you ever want to talk, put your hand over your mouth. If I touch it, you can talk. If I don't and you still talk, I'll beat you with that iron bar. And then he proceeded to sexually assault Chris. And then the psychological torture continued. Listen, you didn't choose to be here, but you are. So for you to survive being here and for you to, you know, make it, it can either be rough or it can be easy. If I grow to like you and trust you, then I'm going to do special things for you. I'm going to buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work. But if you don't cooperate, you're going to be tied to the bed till I'm ready to have sex with you again. Or maybe I'll throw you in the basement and tie you up there. If you annoy me too much, you know, I know some people who wouldn't mind taking turns with you. Now let's think about it, Chris. The only way for you to hurt me is with your arms and teeth. I can easily make sure that you never use your arms again. And I can surely take out all your teeth one by one. You try and escape, you're going to be dead. Now, Chris is terrified. I mean, he's in and out of consciousness. He can barely even, you know, form these thoughts. He's very fuzzy. He's hazy. He's tied up. He's in just undescribable pain. And he's also thinking about the angry chow chows downstairs. Like any other dog, you know, chow chows have the ingredients to be a very scary dog. You know, they're stubborn, smart, very aloof, almost cat-like in their attitude. So if you have some owners that train these chow chows to be aggressive, They can be pretty aggressive. They can be pretty scary. So for the next few days, Chris is kept in captivity. He's drugged. He's assaulted. All the while, Bob is documenting everything in shorthand in his journal of what Chris is going through. And he's taking Polaroid pictures. Even all the injections, like Bob is some sort of doctor. He would assault Chris multiple times a day. 
tied to the bed with that dog leash. He was still being beat and electrocuted. He still had drain cleaner injected into his throat every single day. And he was still being threatened. He said, I've gotten this far with other people, you know, Chris. And they're all dead now because of the mistakes they made. Remember what has happened and what could happen. So within a few days, Chris starts building that trust. And Bob would start playing TV at the end of the bed for Chris. You know, mainly basketball. And while Bob was gone, one of the players was being interviewed. Now, one of these basketball players had a massive ankle injury. So he's back on the court and they're all like, how did you do it? How did people thought you were never going to be able to play again? And he said, I knew that I was going to have to go through a lot to get back on the court. But I knew one day I was going to be here. And Chris was moved. He felt like, you know what? I got to get out of here. Whatever it takes, I got to get out of here. So next time he asked Bob, listen, you trust me. I haven't done anything. I've just been cooperating. I get it. I'm going to die if I don't listen. Can you just tie my hands in front of me? It's hurting. Like so far, it's just been over his head. It's been the blood circulation. It's so sore. My shoulders hurt, please. And and while you're gone, I can change the remote channel, right? Because my hands are going to be in front of me. Is that okay? You can still tie my feet up. You can still keep my leash tied to the bed. I'm not going anywhere. Just my arms hurt. So Bob allows it. And the next time he ties his feet to the bed, keeps his leash attached to the bed with his collar on, but ties his hands in front of him and leaves for work. This is his chance. So Chris starts untying his hands, takes off the gag, but the leash, he can get it untied from the bed, but the collar is still attached. It's like padlocked onto him. Mm-hmm. So he's like, okay, that's fine. I can still get out of the bed, right? Mm-hmm. Then his legs, he starts trying to untie them, but it's not working. There was a lighter next to the bed for cigarettes. So mm-hmm. he grabs the lighter and starts burning through the ropes till they're all singed off. Four layers of rope. And immediately goes to the window and he's thinking, well, of course, this guy's probably done it before. The window's probably locked. He probably has cameras. Like, I'm screwed. I'm going to die. But he opens it up and it's open. And he immediately jumps off the second floor. Thankfully, he doesn't hurt himself. He did break a bone in his foot, but he just kept running. That adrenaline starts running towards the street. He's butt naked with a dog collar and a leash attached. That's it, right? Runs towards one of Bob's neighbors. Please, please call the police. He's trying to kill me. That crazy son of a bitch is trying to kill me. Please. And the neighbor is like, you are butt naked wearing a dog collar. I'm not letting you inside my house. Oh, my God. Sit on my porch. I'll call the cops. So he's just sitting on the porch completely naked and calls the cops. Now, the police, they casually come. You know, they heard what happened. This guy was seen naked, jumping out of a second story window with a leash around his neck, talking about how someone's trying to kill him. There was definitely an air of homophobia in the cops back then Mm -hmm. and to this day, but worse back then. And they would always say, you know, the gays, that's just a normal Tuesday for them. Oh, my God. They thought that this was just purely a domestic issue and that probably Chris was just upset at his boyfriend. You know, I I don't understand. Okay, (laughs) so they ask Chris, you know, they come over and they say, "Okay, let's be honest. He was your lover, wasn't he? Chris is like, what? No, it's this guy named Bob. No, he's not my lover. I, and he starts realizing the police are not going to treat him well if he confides that he's a sex worker because police at that time and still kind of to this day are under the impression that sex workers cannot be raped, mm. which is really dumb because that's like saying, well, if I walk into your shop and I steal something, that's not really stealing because you're selling it anyway. It's like really dumb, right? Mm -hmm. But they're like, well, you can't be raped if you're a sex worker. That doesn't make any sense. So he says, you know, I I was hitchhiking. 
And he picked me up on the highway and he brought me to his house and he started doing these things. He tried to kill me. He, d- he put the drain on my neck. And of course, you know, his, his voice was really weak. His mm-hmm. voice was really raspy and it hurt him to talk. So the police were thinking, okay, maybe, maybe something weird's going on, right? So they take his report. They send Chris to the hospital and they wait for Bob to get home. And about an hour later, Bob shows up. Excuse me, officers, what's going on here? You tell us. You're being arrested for sexual assault. Would you be willing to sign a consent to search to let us look into your house? Uh, for what? To check the victim's report. What's the victim's name? Christopher. What's his last name? Is he here right now? That's none of your business. We got him and he's talking. So Bob, do you want to let us in or not? Because we can get a search warrant. Well, officers, if you won't give me any information, I'm going to respectfully decline to let you in my house. So they arrest his ass and they take him to the station. And at the station, they read him his Miranda rights. And this guy, the whole time, Bob doesn't look scared. He doesn't look concerned. He just looks disgusted at the police. He looks just he in the most condescending tone. He says, officer, if you are an officer, maybe you're a detective. I just have nothing to say at this time. But I'd like to make a phone call. Just so casually, so condescending. What gives him so much confidence? Because he had been, you know, interviewed for some missing persons reports and the police did nothing. They Uh, never got a search warrant. They didn't care. I see. And at the time, I'm sure he knew the homophobia that was just raging in the police departments. You know, they typically didn't care, especially, you know, add in the fact that Chris was a sex worker. And like, I'm not going to go into my whole spiel about how I feel about it, but just know that I'm angry. So once the police hear Chris's full story, even then they were divided. Some still thought this is some sort of weird lovers quarrel. You know, maybe Chris just hasn't come out yet. So he's making up this lie that like, oh, my God, he was holding me captive. But in reality, he's just into hardcore BDSM. But you did have some smart officers who said, no, 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 this is going to be a huge case because nobody just does that once. Mm -hmm. Something weird's going on. They get their search warrant and they enter the nasty house covered in knickknacks, artifacts. They had to call animal control to handle the pack of chow chows and the police get straight to work. Every part of the place was covered in things. You know, they have to document every little thing because you don't know. And then to have that like evidence line disrupted, that's like a defense attorney's dream. They go room to room. There's molded turkey, you know, in the kitchen. There's dog poop everywhere, dirty dishes everywhere. They go into the room that Chris claimed that he was held captive in. And sure enough, they find everything. The rope that was burnt, the electrical shocker, the syringes with bottles of clear liquid, Polaroids of Chris being naked and tortured. He looks like he's not having a good time. This doesn't look like a cute little, ooh, BDSM, but I changed my mind. Which, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know why the cops even thought that in the first place, right? They're all staring at the Polaroids and they think, geez, this guy's story is actually real. He's not lying. He was being tortured. And then they hear a voice. One of the officers says, guys, come over here. They rush over. And they find what looks to be a human skull. Is this thing real? I don't know. And they open up another closet. Another human skull. Is this one real? Wait, what's that thing under it? There was this like lumpy envelope right under it. They open it up and they find human teeth. Oh my God, the skull doesn't have human teeth. The skull is toothless. Do you think? No, there's no way. So they had to call in some experts while they continue searching. One of the police officers lifts up a mattress. Oh no, 
a clear plastic bag with more photos. All naked men, many of them being tortured. This is not consensual. Doesn't look like they're having a good time. They look like they're in absolute agony and pain. Some of them would be close-ups of thighs, of necks, of backs, just with needles sticking out of it. There were pieces of paper with times and dates and these little shorthand notes. What's going on? I find that working out is just getting more and more expensive in my life. And I start looking at the numbers and I'm like, you know what? I'll just I'll just wake up by myself like I don't need I don't need all of this and then I put a little yoga mat down and I just kind of lay there and browse Instagram and TikTok and I'm like okay I gotta find an affordable way which is why I recommend Echelon it brings the gym home and it's affordable you're trying to get up with your fitness goals and you want these world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin Michael Brown you want a community I mean that's the best part about working out is having hundreds of thousands of people who give you that extra push who are on the same path as you are who understand you who relate to you and Echelon gives you that it's the affordable way to get workout equipment and a workout community and an instructor motivation right in the comfort of your home. They have a fitness app that provides you with thousands of live and on-demand classes with great music because music is important with working out from your favorite artists. You can work out anytime, day, night, doesn't matter. Crush those fitness goals. You just pick your class, climb the leaderboard, cheer each other on and give it your all. Now here's the best part. They have a full range of affordable workout equipment, including stationary bikes, smart rowers, sleek fitness screens and auto folding treadmills that are all connected to provide the Echelon experience. And one membership covers a family of five. I love that because we got a lot of people in and out of the house right now. So it's been amazing to all just be able to work out together. Right now, you can get an Echelon EX3 bike risk-free for 30 days plus free shipping and assembly. To get this exclusive radio offer with these free bonuses valued at $250, go to echelonfit.com slash rotten. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N-F-I-T dot com slash rotten for this free offer. Echelonfit.com. So they browsed through more of the pictures. There were men being sexually assaulted with carrots and cucumbers. There was a picture of a man seemingly dead hanging upside down. Ankles tied up from the basement beam. Mouth open, eyes closed, no expression. This man looks dead. This man looks dead and there might be two human skulls in this house. What is going on here? So they also find a list of names under a folder called house guests. And one of those names that stuck out was James Ferris. They run his name through the system. He had been reported missing and Bob had been interviewed about his disappearance. They find multiple books on religion, some on Satanism. So immediately they're thinking, is this guy making human sacrifices? Is this a devil worshiper? They found a bag of plastic bones and the police start arguing. No, I swear. Those are dinosaur bones. Are you kidding? That's clearly a human vertebrae. Don't be a freaking idiot. They even found newspaper clippings about serial killers such as Elmer Wayne Henley, Dean Corll's accomplice, Charles Tex Watson, hardcore porn magazines, books on sadism. So they're thinking, okay, we gotta, we gotta really search this house. Now, this, the house itself would have been such a struggle to comb through. I mean, how do you know what's evidence? What's just a bizarre thing that he's collecting and what's truly a crime? Now, let's start on the backyard. They start digging because Bob's neighbor had mentioned, you know, Bob picked up a hobby briefly, digging holes and filling them at night. How many times do I have to say that? That's not a hobby. That's suspicious. 
and there was a patch with fresh soil. So they start combing through it, digging. That's when they found it. There in the soil was a skull with hair still attached, with skin tissue still left. Oh, man. This is not an artifact. The smell, the look, the fact that it was buried, the police immediately knew. They didn't even need to call in the expert. This was a body. They keep digging. They find pieces of vertebrae, but they don't find the full body. It's just a decapitated head and some bone pieces. Where's the rest of the body? Is this one of the men from the Polaroid pictures? Did Bob kill them? Did Bob kill all the men from the Polaroid pictures? Because there's a lot of men in those pictures. Are we going to find dozens of bodies? Is this a serial killer? They search Bob's Bazaar Bazaar and they find the final four skulls and they start freaking out, right? But the expert said, no, it's clear that these are artifacts. And it seems like Bob wasn't hiding anything in his shop. <laughs> but that wouldn't stop the press from coming to their own conclusions. Why, said, do I, why do I doubt that so much? That's exactly what the public said. They said, no, 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 because he's always selling these like beaded, you know, bracelets, these yeah. very, you know, complicated looking artifacts. What if there's bone pieces in there? Exactly. As a man that's killing people and collecting these, these pieces, I don't see him making a store and sell not real bones or... Or my thinking is like, this guy is a collector, Mm -hmm. of just all things right mm -hmm. that's his passion that's his joy that's his hobby that's everything i just can't believe that he only kept later he would say that he only kept two skulls of his victims for me that's mm -hmm. hard to believe yeah. i don't necessarily know if he sold anything but i just feel like it's hard to say that he only collected two things out of yeah. all these murders especially because even non-collecting serial killers a ton of them take trophies they love stuff like this they love mementos so then the police go back and question Chris again. And they're like, listen, we know that you're probably lying. OK, you probably weren't hitchhiking. You said that there was a woman in the car with Bob and that's why you got in. But let's be real. So finally, he changes his story and says, you know what? There wasn't a woman in the car, but I really was hitchhiking. The police don't believe that. They believe that he is a sex worker. But the main concern was that is this still going to work? Because not just the police, but typically juries don't believe that you can be raped if you're a sex worker. They think that you're not a credible witness. They think that you're money hungry as a sex worker, which is insane because I have very rarely heard of sex, sex workers becoming billionaires. OK, they're not money hungry. They're just trying to make a living. And it's becoming important that they need Bob to stay in prison. So they need Chris to really cooperate with them. They're investigating potential murder charges. Something big is about to happen. They start talking to former boarders who used to stay at Bob's place. And there were a lot. A lot of them would mention that Bob likes to poke people. What do you mean by that? What do you mean poke? Well, I heard rumors that he likes to drug people, like poke them and inject them. And just kind of watch. Most of the times it's with their consent because he would always pick up people who are addicted to drugs. He would always pick up people who are struggling and say, you know, this is, is going to make you feel good. He loved going after depressed people because they had nothing to lose and they just wanted to feel something. And he would just poke them. But he never really did drugs himself. He would just sit back and enjoy. He was just like poking them. That's weird. So they continue digging. They find three glass jars, one filled with bird feathers, one with a bird skeleton, and a third one with dark liquid. Is this some sort of cult thing? Is this some sort of Satanism, satanic panic, you know? 
Now, the problem with the murder case that the police were facing is, yes, the Polaroids and the names, they helped, but they had to track down every man in the pictures. A ton of them, the faces weren't even in there, and the names had to be tracked down. A lot of these men are struggling. They don't have stable jobs that can be easily tracked. They don't have, like, a permanent address in the system. So if you can't track them down, you can't necessarily say that they're not alive somewhere. Then the skull. Bob could say it belonged to anyone, could say that it was there before he moved in, that he didn't bury it, he had all these renters in the house. How do you know that this skull even died from homicide? What if they just died? What if someone else buried the skull? I mean, all the police had was circumstantial evidence. The press get involved and the rumors start going crazy. Oh my God, he's a suspected murderer. What if, what if he fed the meat? What if he fed the humans to his angry chow-chows? And this rumor started getting crazier and crazier because animal control and all these vets said that the chow chows, after they were taken in, would not consume dog food. Then some neighbors came forward. I saw him feed the dogs. He never feeds them kibble. It's always like some mystery meat in the freezer. Sure enough, they open up the freezer. There's meat inside. Thankfully, it was later found to be beef. The neighbors had their own theory. Remember how we used to have these neighborhood potlucks? Bob would always bring these meaty casseroles, these just meat-filled curry dishes. And we always kept asking, Bob, this is delicious. Give me no. your recipe. And he would never, ever give us our, the recipe. And we just thought this guy is greedy. Maybe it's a family recipe. He doesn't want it to get out. Or maybe he put a secret ingredient in there. So the press was just going absolutely wild. And then it got worse. The experts concluded that in the house, there were two real human skulls. The one in the backyard was said to be about 25 to 36 years old. The vertebrae belonged to that skull and was dismembered by a knife. The skull was probably only dead for six weeks to 10 months. So Bob had been living there. Bob had lived in this house for 20 years. The skull inside the house was a man suspected to be 21 to 32 years old. And it's said that the skull had been buried, then dug back up, And the teeth also belonged to the skull. Probably dead no longer than 18 months. The rest of the house turned up splotches of blood, but no smoking gun. So they're thinking, well, we've got the guy arrested for sodomy, for kidnapping of Chris Bryson. Mm -hmm. But let's try something different. We want him to confess to murder. How do we do that? Let's humiliate him. That was their thinking. We're going to play some psychological games. He's intelligent. That's what we found out. He's got this high IQ. We're just going to play some mind games with him. So they bring him into the room inside of a jail and a bunch of police officers there. They say, Bob, you're going to have to get naked for us. What? Well, you see, we found these Polaroids in your house. And obviously, we assume that you're the one taking the Polaroid pictures, but your face isn't in them. But we have, you know, your belly, your arms, your legs, and... You know, your other things in there. So we need you to pose in the exact same poses so that we can take pictures. And if you don't do it, we're going to make you do it. If you don't consensually go into these positions, we can force you to do it. What was the purpose of this? To humiliate him. They thought that after humiliating him, breaking down his ego and his confidence, Mm -hmm. and then trying to say, do you know how much evidence we have on you? They thought that he might confess because he's too smart. He's too smart and cocky to think, oh, let me just confess straight off the bat, you know, Mm, right off the bat. So they get him naked. They strip him down. They have him sitting on his, you know, on a stool. They've got him with his knees down, his legs spread apart and all these really, really intense 
positions and they started taking pictures. I mean, it was humiliating. There was a ton of police officers, a ton of jail guards just watching the whole process. And they kept saying, if you don't do it, we will make you do it. This lasted for an hour and the police enjoyed it, not because they liked it, but because they had been studying the victim's pictures for so long. And it was clear that nobody in Bob's Polaroids wanted to do what they were forced to do. Uh-huh. And now they were giving him a taste of his own medicine. And what does Bob feel about it? He was upset. He okay. would hold a grudge till later. They thought that after humiliating him, he would be so thrown off. He would have all of these emotions and he would just confess to the murders. That's what they needed. But it didn't work. Even the jail psychiatrist said Bob believed that he was someone who helped these young men. And he was just taken advantage of. I mean, it's just such an unfortunate situation. Listen, I'm always helping these guys get up on their feet. I let them stay in my house for free sometimes. I help them find jobs. I give them recommendations. I buy them food. But every time they would either steal from me, lie to me, or get used to my help and just expect it. I was manipulated. I was humiliated. That's what he would tell them. The police concluded that there were six to seven men in the pictures that weren't ID'd, alive or missing. The rest were found. They were able to ID two of the skulls, one as Robert Sheldon and a Larry Pearson. These are not the same missing persons reports that they were investigating. So they're thinking we're talking about at least four people that we have unaccounted for sure. They try to get a handwriting sample from Bob and he refuses. Then he gets put in prison for six months for contempt of court. They they said, okay, we're going to pursue him for sodomy and kidnapping and then two counts of first degree murder. And the prosecutors were seeking death. They were going all out. I mean, they were pissed, right? Kansas City, Missouri had never seen a crime like this and they all wanted something drastic. The community was upset. They said, no, we can't do life in prison because we never know when the laws are going to change. What if 10 years down the line, there's a new law that life imprisonment is inhumane like a lot of other countries except for the US. They don't let you have life in prison without parole. Mm -hmm. What if those laws happen? What if he escapes from prison? What if he kills people in prison? We got to kill him first. Like that was kind of the sentiment that was going around in the community. I'm not saying it's correct, but that was the vibe. Little did they know that Bob's biggest fear was that he was terrified of dying. I mean, just wanted to live. He, his survival instinct was like the strongest thing in the world. So the first court hearing for one count of murder without telling the prosecutors, Bob enters the courtroom and pleads guilty. And jaws were just dropping to the ground because nobody really pleads guilty without trying to get some sort of deal first. Because you're like, listen, I'll plead guilty if you but for me. Yeah, what happened? Why did he do that? Because the punishment for pleading guilty would be life imprisonment without parole. And he wanted that. Instead of the death penalty. And the public was outraged they wanted to know the truth without a trial how do we know the truth how many victims are there we want him executed what if he escapes what if the family say never get closure what about all these missing men how do we know which ones you know had crossed paths with bob mm-hmm. we have so many questions but the prosecutors felt like it was the safest option. They didn't think that Bob would testify at trial. Most of their evidence was circumstantial at best. So they decided, we're going to let him plead guilty for this one count of murder. We still have two more trials, one for sodomy and kidnapping and another murder trial where we're going to seek the death penalty. But it's less risk because worst case scenario, even if he's found not guilty of the crime, he's still in prison for life. So that's kind of where the prosecutors were coming from. Now, Bob's attorney approached them with a deal now. 
He said, listen, you probably don't even want to go through a trial for Chris Bryson because let's be real. He's a sex worker. How credible is he? And does he really want to go through a trial and let the whole world know that this is what he was doing for a living? And, you know, because people were not very sex work positive back then. And still to this day, we have a lot of work that needs to be done. Right. So why don't we just plead guilty? As long as Chris Bryson signs this waiver that he will not sue Bob. Now, the DA didn't pressure Chris, but they bring him with this deal. They explain everything. And Chris was really going through a rough time. He was becoming more addicted to drugs. He wasn't getting along with his wife and his kids. And all he could think about was his days in captivity. I mean, he had extreme PTSD. He was terrified, just wanted it over with. So he signed the deal. Now, this is something that the DA's office will feel super crappy about later on. And so will Chris. He will actually sue Bob regardless, which good for him, right? And so he pleads guilty for sodomy and kidnapping. Now the DA's office had one more murder charge and they were going to seek death. Like I said, this guy already has life in prison, so no risk for them. Let's do it. Now, Bob's attorneys reach out and they say, even if we go to trial, you guys have circumstantial evidence And we're not going to testify. Bob is going to say absolutely nothing. So it's going to be a waste of tax dollars. The family of the victims, they'll never get closure. Unless we come up with a deal. Bob wants to confess to any and all murders he's committed as long as you agree not to seek the death penalty. How many murders? Well, we'd have to discuss the conditions first. This attorney kind of knows what he's doing, huh? Yeah, and it was a public defender. Yeah. Wow. So Bob sells all of his artifacts at auction, makes about $200,000. He sells his house to a millionaire for an undisclosed amount. Who it was is later buying demolished. This? this millionaire was actually a former convicted bank robber who then started selling, I think, like security systems and made a ton of legal money. Just a very eccentric um, person, too. Just a weird rich person. Why would I want to buy security system from someone like that? I, I mean, wouldn't feel secure. Would it be the best security system? <laughs> or would it be the worst? Or would it? Yeah, it could either be the worst <sighs> or the best. <laughs> so then they had a new condition that all of the families of the victims would agree not to sue after he confesses. Now, the prosecutors, they absolutely refuse this. Mm-mm, absolutely not. We are not even going to approach the families with this offer because this is just predatory. He just made $200,000. You're talking about families who barely have enough to just get by. And no, we're not doing that. Besides, at this point, Chris had already sued Bob after he signed the raver. So this is like moot point. Bob doesn't care, right? Okay, fine, but there's going to be no videotaping, no audio recording of the sessions, and we're going to confess in three days in county jail in ultimate secrecy. We don't want the media to know that the confession is happening, and we don't want police officer Ashley Hearn there. This was the officer that forced Bob to take the pictures. Maybe Bob's holding a grudge. Once they agreed, they set the date, and they would be discussing six murders. The police thought it would be more, and we'll get into that. So let's talk about the confessions. The first was Jerry Howell, a 19-year-old. Now, Paul Howell is Jerry's dad. He owned a booth at the flea market, and Bob's Bizarre Bizarre would be there often, right? So Paul Howell and Bob knew each other for quite some years, you know? They weren't close, but they saw each other around. And one day, Jerry, who's 15, would always help out at Paul's little, you know, shop at the booth. 
and he started kind of being fascinated by Bob, mainly because Bob was openly gay. So Jerry being 15, I mean, this was an adventurous kid. He would constantly joke around with Bob and it got to the point where he would say things like, I have a friend that I can sell to you $50 for the night, almost as a joke, right? Bob would say that's $30 over market price. Jerry would just start giggling like, oh my God, that's crazy. But then suddenly Bob would get serious. If you're not serious about selling your friend, then stop it. Okay, that's a little weird. Listen, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I have been getting a lot of comments on YouTube recently. Like, Stephanie, what's going on? You moved across the country. You're still posting your podcast. You're posting YouTube videos. How are you doing it? Let me tell you, it's because during the day, I'm a hot mess, okay? It's been crazy. But at night, when I plop my body, when I plop my head down onto my bed, I knock out. <laughs> like, tell them. It's like two seconds and I'm done. Out cold. Start snoring in like three seconds. It's insanity. And I used to never be like this. I used to have like, I used, talked about it a lot. I would lay in bed, think about all these anxiety inducing thoughts because my mattress was just so uncomfortable. And after I switched to my Helix mattress, I mean, it's a whole new world. I'm telling you. So here's the thing about Helix. They know that everyone sleeps differently. And that's true. So you take this online quiz that just takes two minutes to complete, matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you why would you buy a mattress for someone else you know it's for you with helix you're getting a mattress that you know that's going to be perfect for the way that you sleep for example i'm a crazy side sleeper i cannot fall asleep on my back i don't know what the problem is so with my last mattress i had so much shoulder pain i had hip pain i felt like i was 60 i was like you know what maybe i'm just getting old this is what happens in your mid-20s no, it was my mattress. My fiance, he sleeps so hot. So with that combined, we filled out the quiz and we were matched to a king size midnight luxe mattress. And it's got this medium firmness. My shoulders have not hurt since I've laid my body on this amazing mattress. I knock out. It feels so cozy. It feels so comfortable. Sometimes I even do work on it with my little laptop stand. It just molds to my body. And Helix even has Helix Plus mattresses for plus size sleepers. I mean, I love it. It's been such a huge upgrade to what I've had. And the best part is delivery and setting up was so easy. Okay, I didn't have to go to a mattress store. I didn't have to talk to mattress salesmen. And I've recently gotten a lot of DMs of you guys unboxing your Helix mattresses, which I've been so happy to receive. And they're shipped to your door for free. They also have a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. So Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com. That's helixsleep.com slash rotten for up to $200 off and two free pillows. But Jerry had other things to focus on. He was really focused on helping his family financially. He started, you know, trying to find things that his dad could sell. But also, he got into sex work to help his family. And one day he tells Bob, guess what, Bob? I'm doing sex work downtown. And Bob freaked out. What? You're too young. You're not even street smart. You're never going to survive downtown. Do you know the type of clients that roam downtown? Mm -mm. Such a dangerous place. And the competition, you don't even have what it takes to stand out. Listen, I'm just saying you shouldn't do this. This is not a good route. And Jerry's like, I did not tell you to be lectured. Like, you're not my dad. You don't have to tell me these things. And for whatever reason, maybe genuine care, maybe spite, Bob tells Paul Howell what his son is doing. Paul, guess what? Your son's a sex worker. 
Paul gets pissed, takes it out on Jerry. Jerry's pissed. He's like, why the hell would you tell my dad that? Bob, what's wrong with you? They stop hanging out for some time. Jerry tries moving to LA, gets arrested for stealing a lawnmower, and just has a lot of run-ins with the law. Finally, Jerry's dad is like, enough. I'm going to put money down so that you can start up your own shop. How does that sound? So now Jerry's like determined to turn his life around, but he still had some lawyer fees to pay for his past arrests. And he asked Bob, listen, I need some more money. Can I do some yard work? Can I do something around your house? And slowly they start becoming friends again. They start going to movies. They start going to lunch. But increasingly, Bob gets pissed off at Jerry because he's saying, you never keep your word. You always say that if I help you with this, you're going to do this. You're going to pay me back. You're going to be thankful. You're going to be grateful. Or that we're going to have sex. So they started kind of having somewhat of a sexual relationship. But you never really pull through. And he was just so upset. So one day he gives Jerry tranquilizers. Ties him up to the bed. And Bob claimed that this was his first time doing something like this. He sexually assaults Jerry. And then runs to his little journal and writes the letter F. And it stood for F-U-C-K. Then he noticed that Jerry was having trouble breathing kept throwing up because of the drugs, the tranquilizer. He had a gag on so that he wouldn't scream. Then he realized, well, this guy's probably going to die. So he writes into his journal, eyes are blank. Pupils are not responding to light. And then immediately after, he writes BF, which stands for B-U-T-T-F-U-C-K. I don't know why. I just don't want to say it in this context. And he journaled that Jerry starts snoring. Then he sodomized him again between 1.30 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. He sodomized Jerry four times. And in between these assaults, he would just like lay next to Jerry. He would give Jerry more tranquilizers every time he starts getting up. And then at 8.30 a.m., he wrote CF. The police were like, what does that mean? What is CF shorthand for? And he said, carrot F-U-C-K. And the police were like, where did you get this idea to assault young men with vegetables? And he said, I don't know, nothing in particular really inspired it. It was just something I decided to do at 830 in the morning. Yeah. And the way that he's like confessing to the police, he's sounding so nonchalant as if he's just kind of going through the day's planner. Oh, we got a meeting at this time. I got to pick up some errands, pick up some groceries at this time. Just so casual. Then he went to work, came home, started the torture and assault all over again. He knew at this point that there was no going back. He said that either Jerry's going to escape and I'm going to be arrested or he can never leave. So he writes down RP in his journal and the police are like, what, what the heck is RP? And he says, well, that's rape because Jerry was conscious enough to try to like talk me out of it. And the police were like, well, everything is rape in this situation. But yeah. what? And then he wrote C-U-C-R. They're like, what is C-U-C-R? cucumber rape and again he had no idea why he thought of doing that he was just angry at a bunch of men for using him and his anger boiled over and he took it out on jerry they're like this is bizarre he tortures jerry for about 28 hours and then he realizes that jerry had died he had vomited and because of the gag because of you know the drugs he asphyxiated and died And he said it so casually as if he's describing lunch that he just had to drag him into the basement, hung him from his feet to drain his blood, took photos of dead Jerry hanging from the basement. And they asked, why would you do that? And I quote, I guess I was forming some kind of trophy or record for the event. I think that's what my feelings were. Later, I would revisit the pictures for stimulation for masturbation. 
And so he grabs this large pot, places it under Jerry's head, cuts the inside of Jerry's elbows and the vein in his neck and drains out all of his blood. And now the trash pickup doesn't come till Monday. So he left Jerry hanging there Friday and Saturday, went to work in his shop, finally got home, put on an apron and an electric saw and started dismembering Jerry's body, placed his head in newspapers, then into trash bags, then they were placed into empty dog food containers, then into more trash bags. And the police are like, did you, did you feel any remorse during all of this? Well, I wouldn't know if at that state I was able to feel remorse. My main thought that I had to survive and not get caught by Paul Howell and the police. He claimed that he saved nothing from Jerry's body and he didn't partake in necrophilia. So I don't really know. Now, Jerry just vanishes. Paul Howell doesn't get it. Jerry was so excited. He had, like, he had these tickets to Michael Jackson's tour. Like, this just isn't like his son. So he said, Bob, have you seen Jerry? I know that he was with you that day. Do you know where he went after? Oh, yeah. Uh, I dropped him off at 7-Eleven. But why? He wanted to go to 7-Eleven. And you never saw him again? Nope. That was the last time. So he starts going to the police. Listen, this guy's weird. He's been, you know, talking to my son ever since he was 15. I swear something's up with this guy. He's panicked. He starts, you know, the police don't care. So Paul starts going downtown asking other sex workers, have you seen my son? Have you seen my son? And Paul starts watching Bob, stalking him in front of his house, going through Bob's trash. His parental instinct was telling him something is wrong. Wow. And the police didn't care. They said, well, we already asked Bob and there's not much more we can do. And so the Howell family, I mean, they're getting so frustrated, especially Jerry's older brother, who's like, this doesn't make sense. Get so frustrated that on Jerry's 20th birthday, they still haven't heard from him. This is unlike Jerry. It's his birthday. He goes to the flea market, walks straight up to Bob and just punches him square in the face. I want to find my brother, you mother forker. You know where he is. And Bob had the audacity to file a police report for assault. And the police just kind of forget about it. So then almost a year later, Robert Sheldon, who was 20 years old, was staying at Bob's place. He was introduced by a friend to Bob and he paid a little bit of rent, but mainly Robert was struggling. He was addicted to alcohol. Anytime he couldn't come up with rent, Bob would kick him out again. Then he would come back with a little bit of cash and be like, please, Bob, I know, I know I'm late. Can I just stay here for the night? So this was just like nonstop back and forth. Bob would write in his you know, journal that Robert was on another drinking binge and he just started getting madder and madder. This guy just drinks and drinks and doesn't even acknowledge that he's taking advantage of me, that he's not paying his rent. And it's almost been a year since his last murder. At first, he had felt guilty about Jerry Howell's murder and just stopped thinking about it for the past year. Then he started thinking about it more. Then it got to the point where he started craving it. And that's where he was now. So he decided that he couldn't wait any longer. He had to drug Robert, but he wasn't necessarily attracted to him. Now, this is what the police were kind of confused. What do you mean you weren't attracted to Robert? Nothing about him made me attracted to him. But that doesn't make sense. Well, my darkest fantasies were becoming my reality when I was capturing people, controlling them. You don't necessarily need sexual attractiveness to do that. So after a few attempts at trying to drug Robert, like there was one where he literally injected Robert with drugs while he was on the couch. Mm -hmm. And Robert got up and was like, I feel like something poked me in the back. Man, my muscles hurt. And then he went to the hospital. And then he was safe, right? 
But finally, the time came when Robert asked Bob for a Valium. He said, why don't you take this instead? It's a heavy duty tranquilizer. It's going to be so much better than Valium. You're just going to knock out. You're going to be sleep. You're going to get the best sleep of your life. So Robert being trusting, he took it and he was knocked out cold. Bob carried him upstairs, gave him more drugs, including ketamine, and then started to assault him. And then he injected drain cleaner into his left eye, which left Robert screaming for two minutes straight. Now, Bob was really offended. When this came out in the press, he said, obviously, I wasn't trying to damage the eye, just cause some pain, perhaps, you know, damage it temporarily so that it would be easier to keep him and control him. That's it. So then he started with the torture. He tattooed the word hot onto Robert's shoulder with a hot needle. He said it didn't matter what word because they were like, what does that symbolize? Why hot? Just putting his mark on him was enough. He didn't need a specific word. And then he started assaulting him with vegetables. He got the caulking gun and started caulking inside of his ears so that Robert couldn't hear him. He started experimenting by placing needles under the fingertips. And he said he liked it because having people like this was having like a blow-up doll or like a clay figure as a kid. You move it around, you have complete control of it. He said he enjoyed it. So then when he, come home, when he comes home from work, Robert would tell him, you can't do this to me. You have to let me go. And Bob would just start hitting him on the head with a rubber mallet. And then this was the first time that he electrocuted his victims, connected a machine to needles that he placed inside of Robert and actually took a picture while there were 7,700 volts running through his body and then pulled out a plastic bag, placed it over Robert's head, tied a rope around it, took some photos and left to make sure that he was dead. Do you want to know why he killed him? Because you're thinking, well, I thought he wanted to have a human toy because a friend was coming over to do some yard work. Took him into the bathtub, cut his body up to drain him and then started to dismember him. For whatever reason, he kept Robert's head, stuck it in the freezer for about a week, took off as much skin and hair as possible, then buried it in the backyard. He claims he has no idea why he did that, but I mean, I assume it's for a trophy. Then not too long after... There was a man cutting his lawn, right? Mowing his lawn. And uh, his friend was over. So the gardener's friend was over and his name was Mark Wallace and he was 27 years old. And all of a sudden, as they're mowing the lawn, it starts pouring down rain. So Mark hides out in Bob's tool shed, just getting some shelter. He's drenched in rain. And Bob opens it up and realizes there's a full-grown man here. What are you doing here? Mm-hmm. He's like, listen, why don't you come in, Mark? Is that your name? Why don't you come in, get dry? I'll make some tea. So for the first hour, they start talking like normal people. You know, what's what's going on with life? You know, Mark tells him, I'm struggling with alcohol. I'm depressed. I, I'm pushing people away in life and I feel miserable, but I, I, I can't stop it. It's like I'm autopilot into a car crash. I don't know what to do. And this is making Bob really happy because maybe this is a guy that's not going to be missed. Because mm. he's pushing people away. People know that he is sporadic. He's not really the most consistent with showing up to places. Huh. So he injects Mark with tranquilizers and logs everything into his journal and starts undressing him, taking pictures, assaulted him with carrots twice, then sodomized him three more times in that same night. Here's the kicker of it all. The police were like, well, what else did you do to Mark? Because look at these little shorthand notes. He said, oh, I went to the hardware store and I got these, you know, those crazy clips maybe for like car jumper cables mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. and he would place them onto Mark's nipples while they, he was assaulting him. 
They said, well, why did you do that? Well, this was around the time that I started getting into sadomasochist sex. And the police are like, well, what was all of that before? You were like torturing these people. What, what, what was that? He said, well, listen, this is the first time I would torture them while I was assaulting them. There's a clear distinction B- before I would assault them and then torture them and then assault them and then torture them. Now I was doing it all at the same time because I was getting really into sadomasochism. The police are like, what the fork is going on? He starts poking Mark all over with needles. He called it a bizarre acupuncture. And I quote, he just wanted to see when you're unconscious, what part of your body can you stick a giant needle and your body will have a reflex. Looking over all the photos, he says, oh, but you guys didn't find one of them. There's one missing where I assaulted Mark with my fist. So after days of this, he came to check up on Mark later and realized that he was dead. Again, he concluded that it was a combination of the gag, the drugs, the lock of oxygen. And the police said, well, what about you hitting him on the back of the head repeatedly with that rubber mallet? Did that do anything? He said, and I quote, no, because it was firm, not hard, like a mild concussion, I would say. Okay, what did you do after? Well, I dragged him into the bathroom and I started to drain his blood, of course. But the trash pickup was tomorrow, so I had to put on my apron that night and dismember him that night. But why him? You know, you said the other two people, you were so upset, you felt like they were being, you know, taking advantage of you. But Mark just was in your tool shed for two seconds because it was raining. Well, if they're there and they make themselves available, it. I just gave up caring anymore. I became callous. I had this fantasy, a dark fantasy. And then he just put it out in the trash so all of these bodies he would leave for trash pickup for the city's dumpster. Then he met a man by the name of Gene Shaw, walked into Bob's store, and this is uh, this gets a little strange, right? Gene Shaw sees this expensive necklace. What does he do? He steals it. Then a few weeks later, he walks back into Bob's place wearing that necklace that he stole. I mean, insanity. So then he realizes, oh, shit, I'm wearing the necklace that I stole. I got to get out of here. He starts acting angsty. You know, he's like, uh, yeah, anyway, the, nice for the talk, Bob. See you later. And he's trying to get out. And Bob's like, what's wrong with you? Why are you being so jumpy? I, I have high blood pressure. Oh, me too. I can actually sell you some Valium if you want. It helps with the high blood pressure. So that's when Gene starts hanging out with Bob and tells him, I would love to introduce you to one of my friends. His name is James Ferris. He's 25. He's not doing that well in life. He was struggling with addictions. His wife had left him because he had recently sold all of their furniture for $100. And she happened to be pregnant and he seemed to not care. So she kept telling herself, you know, the minute that this baby comes out, James is going to turn his life around, get a job, get it together and become a good father. And a lot of people actually thought that he would do that. But we wouldn't know. So Gene and James, they start hanging out with Bob. And then one day they decide, well, we need some money. And a cop comes up to them. This cop had known them for a while because these are, you know, troublemakers. Do you know anyone that sells drugs? I can give you guys an informant fee. Well, we know this guy named Bob. Okay, set it up. So Gene and James tell Bob, I know this guy. He's going to buy drugs from you. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't be nervous. He's a friend of ours. No, trust me. You can trust him. We've known him for, what, Gene? Like years? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Years. So they set him up. Bob sells the undercover cop drugs. A couple weeks later, he gets arrested by different cops. You know, they're trying to make it discreet that it wasn't Gene and Bob. But coincidentally, around this time, guess who stopped showing up around the house? Gene and James. So he made the connection. Yeah. 
So they kind of, you know, disappear from each other's lives. But not too long after, Bob's driving. And he says, wait a minute, isn't that James hitchhiking? So he skr, skr, stops the car and is like, hey, get in. Now, James was high and drunk and he gets in. They go to a nearby bar and, you know, Bob's pissed. Did you have me arrested? That was your undercover cop, wasn't it? James like, listen, I had absolutely no idea that was Gene's idea. Like, if that was Gene's friend, I was just rooting for Gene. And so they make up and James is like, I need a place to stay. So Bob's like, OK, fine, you can stay with me, but you can't have Gene over. But for some reason, they didn't listen. And James and Gene both came to Bob's house. They started drinking. They started doing drugs. They started getting loud. And the next day, Gene left and Bob was pissed. So he drugged James assaulted him then assaulted him with a carrot and a cucumber then left him tied to the bed grabbed kitchen metal spatulas and used it to electrocute james's body and then moved on to his bizarre acupuncture just tried it on the most painful parts of the body and kept referring to him as a patient like he was some sort of doctor I feel like we recently had for the past year just nonstop clothing trends that were like, oh, you got to keep up with this trend, this trend, this trend. And recently, I think everyone's waking up to the fact that, wait a minute, trends are going in and out so fast. But you know what never really dies? Classic, timeless, quality pieces. So I've been trying to build that part of my wardrobe. I wanted, you know, nice, simple white tanks, comfortable jeans that just molded to my body that I was like, listen, if I don't have anything to wear, I know that I can throw these on. I look classy. I look timeless. And it's just so comfortable. And I've been getting most of those pieces with Everlane. If you guys don't know, Everlane makes quality clothing with ethical factories and radically transparent pricing since 2010. So you can even feel good about the pieces that you're getting. They do extensive research and vetting to use ethical factories that provide fair wages and reasonable hours to the skilled people who are crafting their clothing. And it's the best way to upgrade your just timeless summer look. Whether you guys are going out on town, having movie night with the family, maybe you're doing a workout, maybe takeout. They even have swimwear. They have trackwear. They have lounging. They have practically everything. And they have this amazing breathable organic cotton trackwear that gives you this elevated look you look just so clean you know how some people you look at them and they're like i bet they smell like fresh laundry that's the look of these everlane pieces i also have fallen in love just fully fallen in love with their denim collection because usually i'm not the biggest jeans person but it just like molds to your body it feels really comfortable they have skinny relaxed slim athletic and you can find the perfect cut that fits to your form and i highly recommend checking out just their simple white tanks they're really affordable they're like 30 dollars, and it's buttery you put it on you feel breathable it's super hot and humid here but i love wearing it it just feels good They've got all the everyday essentials that you need and amazing denim, super soft loungewear, and the fact that they partner with some of the best and most ethical factories in the world, you can feel good about it. They also accept returns within 30 days of the ship date and all uniform clothing comes with 365 day guarantees. So go to everlane.com rotten and sign up for 10% off your first order plus free shipping. Get easy returns within 30 days of your ship date. That's 10% off your first order when you go to everlane.com rotten and sign up. So then James develops this really bad fever, tries to administer penicillin to keep him alive, and the police asked, why? Did you want to save his life? And he said, no, so that I could torture him longer. Drags him into the basement once he's dead and drains his body of blood, dismembers him, and leaves him out for the trash pickup again. So then he meets another man, 
meets a guy named Todd Stoops downtown, who's 23 years old. Todd, again, was struggling with addiction, trying to make some money, started working downtown, and they suddenly grew this friendship. And within a few days, you know, he moved in. Todd and his wife moved into the house. But then, you know, Todd's wife ended up leaving. And Bob was just annoyed because he was sexually attracted to Todd more than the rest of the other victims. But Todd was Todd was just so focused on his wife. So what does he do? He puts tranquilizers in his peanut butter sandwich and milk and knocks out Todd. They said, well, is this because you were just attracted to him? Like, did he do you, quote unquote, wrong in any way? Well, I guess I was just handling other stresses in my life. It was kind of like a stress release to have a sexual toy. This would be uh, one of the longer tortured victims. Todd would be held and tortured for the next two weeks. He really wanted to control him. So he decided, I think I need to try to blind him. Electrocuted his eyelids. When he got no reaction, he would start bending his fingers all the way backwards to try to get him to come back to consciousness. He would torture him for like 12 hours straight. You weren't exhausted? Well, if I was tired for work the next day, I would just pop some caffeine tablets and that was good enough. And then one morning, he tried to assault Todd with his fist. And he said that Todd was conscious and this was less sexual, but more wanted to psychologically dominate Todd. And he ruptured his anal wall, which caused severe blood loss. Did he stop? No, he continued to inject drain cleaner into Todd's neck, beat him with a belt, give him more electrical shock, took pictures of him, and the picture showed that Todd was now half his original size. Like he couldn't even hold down solid food. Bob shaved his head, and then Bob came in one day to find him dead. So he took him into the tub and dismembered him for the next two days. And the whole Drano thing, I mean, Bob was pissed. He kept telling the cops, you know, the press, they're making me out to be a really bad person, but I only placed it near the voice box. I didn't want to poison them. I just wanted to damage their voice box so that they couldn't scream or talk well. I'm just like upset because some people even say that I injected it into their veins. I didn't. I wasn't trying to poison them. I just put it in the voice box area. (laughs) What? So then his last victim was 20-year-old Larry Pearson. Met him downtown, and that's when Larry started to come into Bob's store, and Larry got arrested at one point. He, too, was struggling, going through a bad time, not on great terms with his family. So he asked Bob, he called Bob from jail, can you please get me out on bail? Bob said, okay, fine. So the records show that Bob got him out on bail. Larry moves in with him. Bob tries to get him a job, tries to do all these things, but said that he just wasn't, didn't have a work ethic, didn't want to work. So he started getting mad, started getting frustrated. And then decided one day, you know what, I can't do this anymore. Injected him, brought him down into the basement, tied him up, injected drain cleaner into the throat, tied him up with piano wire, started electrocuting him, threatening him, beating him with an iron barn. And he just seemed so nervous. And he kept threatening him. And he would stay in captivity for over a month and a half. Larry Pearson. He would be forced to call Bob Master Bob. He couldn't even escape because his hands were so swollen swollen from being tied with piano wire that he couldn't really, he didn't have dexterity in his hands. Eventually, he was allowed to go upstairs, sleep in one of the bedrooms. Now, one day near the end, Larry starts performing fellatio. Well, forced fellatio on Bob. And he says, you can't do this to me. And bit Bob's penis and blood started dripping out. Like it was a really bad injury. So at this point, Bob is pissed. 
beats him unconscious, goes to the hospital, and the hospital says, well, we got to operate on you. Like, it's really bad. So you got to stay a couple of days. So Bob goes back home, feeds the dogs, and kills Larry, because he's going to be gone for a couple of days, suffocates him with a plastic bag, and leaves the AC on so the body won't decompose. Two things are so weird about this. The first being that Bob decided to file a police report that Larry had bit his penis. And the police were like, why? Why did you do that? Turns out, he says, well, it gives me a good alibi. Yes, I was with him. Yes, he was living with me, but we were having sex and he bit my penis. So he fled because he didn't want me to press charges. So that kind of explains why he would leave town, avoiding the law. The second thing was that Bob claimed that Larry beat his, bit his penis not because he wanted to escape, but because he was jealous. What do you mean by that? Well, while he was performing fellatio, I was uh, browsing through a porn magazine. And Larry was so jealous and the police were shook. Because how do you even do the mental cartwheels to make that make sense in your head? This guy has been being tortured and held captive for a month and a half. And you think that he's jealous that you're like reading a magazine. Like this is the craziest mental cartwheel of life. Mm-hmm. No, he bit your penis because he's terrified. He wants to escape like you're holding him captive. So Bob decides to go home and keep Larry's head. He buries it where Robert's skull was, took out Robert's skull, placed it in his room and replaced it with Larry's. They asked him, how did you get the drugs? He got them from a vet supply store. So he was doing all the vaccine for his chow chows. And this is where a really creepy story comes out. Before he would actually give the tranquilizers to his dogs, he would capture stray dogs and experiment on them first. Because he didn't want his precious chow chows to be badly affected. What? So he was just using that on people now. So he confessed to all of this. It took three days. There were two defense attorneys in the room, two police officers, two prosecutors, and they just wanted to throw up the whole time. They said it was like looking evil directly in the eye and the most unsatisfying thing is he just would die in four years he would only spend four years in prison so in prison bob tries to do these interviews he tried to shift the blame he said yes i'm a serial killer yes i tortured these people yeah i totally killed them but if the police had caught me sooner people wouldn't have died this is their fault the kansas city police department doesn't care about the community i care about the community i just couldn't help myself But it's their job to stop people like me, you know, even if they questioned me a little bit more. I think that I would have been scared enough that I wouldn't have committed so many murders. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is what he was doing interviews with. He's like, do you guys understand? And he also went on to blame the press. He said, you know, this thing about the media, they keep saying that I treated my victims like they were subhuman, that they weren't even people. But guess what they're doing to me? The press is treating me like I'm not human. Just portraying me as nothing but evil, 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 evil. So they're doing the same thing. We are all the same people. It's like, what? So after spending four years in prison, he was rushed to the hospital and died of a heart attack at age 43. Now, Bob claimed that he only killed six people. And the police are kind of standing by that. I don't know if it's to not traumatize the community or to kind of get any blame on their part, right? But a lot of people think it's weird. So you're saying Bob killed someone his first year, then three the next year, then just one the year after? 
Because usually serial killers, they have this like amping pace where it just amps up more and more. Mm -hmm. And his torture was amping up. So it would be strange to not think that his frequency would also gain traction. It's not necessarily how serial killers operate, but I don't know. It hasn't been proven that he has more victims. I think it's just really depressing. I think this whole case, I mean, it's just not talked about. There's not enough stories on the victims' backgrounds to make you feel that intense mo- emotion. But I think the emotion that we should stick with is the fact that, I mean, it's crazy. These yeah. victims were just kind of ignored because they were gay, they were part of the LGBTQ community, or they were sex workers. Yeah. They just let Bob get a- get away with it, really. The fact that he was connected to two separate missing persons cases, it's not even like a couple went missing. It's like two completely separate. But the police were like, well, let's not get a search warrant. Because if they did, they would have found the Polaroids of these victims. They would have found a lot of these. Chris Bryson wouldn't have been traumatized. But this is what Chris has to say. I would like to say that, you know, I have not been no angel in my life. I have not done nothing, though, to deserve what happened to me. I kind of found God, and I think I've been spared for a reason, to help get this man off the streets so that he does not put anyone else through this, or maybe worse. And that is the story of what uh, people call him the Kansas City Butcher, or, you know, just Bob's bizarre story. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think that it was because the victims were from underprivileged areas? Was it because they were gay? How did Bob get away with it for so long? Let me know in the comments. And do you feel upset that he died of a heart attack at 43? Because why do I feel upset? Yeah. I think even people who were pushing for the death penalty were upset. Like, wait, what? That doesn't make sense. Let me know in the comments. There are no comments here. Let me know. And I hope you guys enjoyed this week's main episode. And I'll see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.